This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Buddy. Um, we're doing something that I've never really done before, and the truth is the reason why I'm doing it this way is because I've always wondered this, and I always wanted to put it together. I wanted to know what the gods of Egypt had to do with Paro and Mitzrayim, and I knew there was something. I just didn't know what. So putting this together, here's how we put it. Here's how we're going to understand it. Parak Yud, Pasuk Yud, Vayomer Alehem. Paro says to the Jews after he calls them back, this is right before Makas Arba happens. Moshe Rabbeinu tells them that this is what's going to be. You're going to have all these crazy things happening. And he says to them, this is, this is what's going to be. You're going to get Arba. To which the response back is, Vayomer Alehem. He said back to them, May God be with you when I send you away with all of your kids. Ru'u, you should know, I see, you'll see, there's evil opposite your faces. There's something really terrible that's about to happen, and it's right there, it's about to happen to you, and you don't even recognize it, but Paro's telling the Jews something terrible is about to happen to you. So let's go in the Pashib shot of here. Targum Unkelis and Targum Yonasim Nizil both say that Paro saw something terrible was destined to happen to the Jews. If Moshe Rabbeinu did whatever it was, and he wasn't sure what it was, he said, whatever is going to happen, something bad is going to happen. There are consequences to all of your actions. If the Jews keep this up, there is going to be something that's going to happen that's going to make you all get, get really upset. Neither parish explained how Paro knew this. If he knew it through some type of nevuah, ruach hakodesh, perhaps he knew it through a dream, right? But it doesn't say exactly where he got it from. It was just a premonition, possibly. He knew something was bad, but he wasn't sure how. The Sforno says the same thing. If you walk into something, if you walk into this without thinking, something horrible is going to happen that's going to kill you and all of your men and everything's going to go down. Yimiam Loez calls this actually a curse. Paro is cursing the Jews. You should know, I hope that something terrible happens to you. I hope that something horrible is going to be. I guarantee, he said, that I'm go- you're going to die in the desert. To which the Malach Michoel had to come down and be mevatel that curse, says the Medrash. The Malach Michoel came down and was mevatel it. And it might have been even he that said those words in the next Pasuk. Lo chain, not so. This is not going to happen. That the Malach Michoel had to say not so because Paro's curse was a powerful curse. Some say that lo chain is the gematria of 101, which is the gematria of Michoel. That's the remez that Michoel was involved over here. It may have been him actually saying those words, not Paro. But he's saying, I don't want this curse to happen. Lo chain, we're not going to allow this to be. The Rashbam. The Tur, the Chizkuni, the Maral Diskin, the Ksada Kabbalah, and the Rehersh all say that Paru is telling Moshe, I know what you have planned. There's evil opposite your face. If you look at the words, it says, There's evil by your faces. I can see in your faces that you're planning something bad. I see that you're trying to do something evil. And there's no way you're really going to be satisfied with a three-day vacation and think that's going to be it. After all, when you go on vacation, you're going to want to start, you want to do this for good. There's no way you're going to stay out there. This is not going to happen. What's your real plan? What's your real request here? What are you doing? And that's what he was really asking him. I'm missing out on what you really want to do over here. With any of the people involved, what are you trying to do? The Rashbam says, as soon as Paro heard that the kids were coming, he said, the kids? What do the kids have anything to do with this? Why are you bringing kids with you? When you're going for korbanos, then bring yourselves, bring all the men, maybe some of the women. You wouldn't bring kids. Kids is ridiculous. What are you doing over here? And he even said, this is evil. 
I'm not going to tolerate the evil of bringing kids out with you. It seems like you're doing something that's really wrong. What is this? What's going on over here? And in this sense, the raw that Paro was warning them about is what's going to happen to them if they ran away. Here's what's going to happen. Something evil is going to happen to all of you. Rechaim Kinevsky and Tommy DeCroix says that Akersh Baruch who wanted the Egyptians to realize that the Jews were planning on running away. That even though Moshe Rabbeinu originally said we just want three days in the desert in order to have a Chag, Chag Hashem Machar, that tomorrow is going to be a Chag for Hashem, that instead of just that happening where it was going to be a Chag, they should know in the back of their minds that the Jews were really planning on running away. That should be there. They should not think otherwise. It should always be in their heads. So that they shouldn't be surprised at the end of the day when it actually happens. After Makas Bechoros. The fact that they didn't come back after Makas Bechoros is over should not shock anyone. Says the Tamir Kra, that's why they did it in the first place. They just wanted to make sure that everything was normal. That when it all happened, it was something that everybody could have expected. Nitziv says the evil was a little bit different. Said, what's going on with you bringing a bunch of women and kids to go sacrifice in the middle of the midbar? There's nothing to eat. There's nothing to drink out there. There's no shelter. There's nothing for them to do. You're bringing a bunch of people who are not used to this sort of thing into 140 degree weather without anything to protect them. What are you thinking? Why would you have done this? It was sort of like Paro looking at them and said, don't you realize how bad that is for them? And that's the rub. The way the Nitziv is looking at it, it's not that something bad is going to happen to you. It's that you're putting your kids and your wives in a terrible situation. Why would you do this without thinking? Think about what you're doing over here. You're putting them in the middle of nowhere. How in the world could you bring your kids into this evil? That's ridiculous. So the Ayala Sashachar says, Paro is not trying to be a Rachman. Rav Shaimu saying, this isn't like Paro saying, like, see, I'm more merciful than that. Obviously, he still wanted them as slaves. He just thought that the Jews themselves should make the decision, this is a bad idea for us. This is not something we're going to do. But clearly, this is not Paro saying, like, see, I'm the nicest guy of all time. He was the most evil dictator ever with a bunch of slaves at his disposal. This is not something that Imamish wanted to do. The Be'er Yosef suggests that Paro knew how futile this upcoming Mako is going to be. He looked at them and he said the following. He said, wait, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You're telling me that a plague of locusts is going to come and destroy all our crops. That's what you're telling me right now, right? And this plague of locusts is going to convince me that I should let the Jews go. It's ridiculous. Think about that for a second. A plague of locusts is going to come in and destroy all our crops so the Egyptians are going to be starving. But it's not going to hit the Jews? If it's not going to hit the Jews, that means that we're just going to come to you and steal all your food from you. That's all we're going to do. You think we're going to leave you alone, our slaves, with their food? It's going to be worse for you if you have these locusts come. This is horrible. What do you think is going to happen, especially if you leave for three days? We're going to be starving, right? You're going to go out for three days. And we're just going to go to your houses and raid all the food and take everything from you. Why do you think that's a good thing? And then he said, it must be you're not planning on coming back. And that's when he realized, this is very Yosef, that's when he realized they weren't coming back. But it really is silly. If you really think about it, warning them about the locusts, stealing all their food and taking everything does not bother Paro. We'll just steal from you. We're going to take from you. Why do you think that's going to hurt us at all? That's not going to hurt us at all. We're going to be fine. And that's what made Paro so upset, realizing there's something wrong. There's something going on. As the Ramban said up above, there's something there. It's Ferris Jonas and Jonas and Ibshit says, Paro is telling them to do a cheshben and nefesh. You know what cheshben and nefesh is? Cheshben and nefesh is every single night before you go to sleep, right before you say Kriya Shema Lamita, you spend a minute and you think about your day. 
you sit for one minute, for 60 seconds, and you say, what did I do today? Is there anything I could improve on? Is there something I could do better? And you work on it, whether that comes to your work, whether it comes to your davening and your learning, whether it comes to your family, and all the things that go on during the day. What could you do that would be better for you and everybody around you to make yourself a better person? That's Says Paro, I don't understand. You're bringing a korban. In Paro's mind, a korban is only a kapara. It's an atonement. That's what a korban is. Non-Jews don't bring korbanos stam. They bring it because they need an atonement. That's all they're doing. If you did something wrong, then work on it. If you didn't do anything wrong, then I don't understand what you're doing. What in the world are you doing out here? What is this raw, he's telling them, raw neged penechem? What is this raw that you have, this evil thing that you've done, that you feel you need to bring a kapara for, that you need a korban for? This doesn't make any sense. And the truth is, Paro was wrong. Because Jews do bring korbanos as kaparos. There are olas, there are chatos. But we also bring korbanos that are called shlamim, peace offerings. We do bring korbanos like that. Peace offerings are not there for a kapara. Peace offerings are there to be able to say to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, thank you. There are thank yous back to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Paro didn't understand that. So when we said to him, we're going out to sacrifice to our God to thank him for all the good we've had, he looked at him and he's like, first of all, you've been slaves. For the last 86 years, maybe 210 years, you've been slaves. You're going to thank him? Number two, that's not what a korban is for. A korban's for a kapara. And you don't need a kapara. This doesn't make any sense. Said Paro over to the people, he said, something's wrong here. Something smells. Something stinks. All of these perushim are all in the same basic category. The Paro saw something was wrong, couldn't put his finger on it, and realized that the Jews were asking for something else, but couldn't figure out what it was. What exactly is Paro looking for? It, yeah, Mati. For the non-Jews, for the non-Jews. That's what they think. I mean, yes, even though there are other forms of Avodah Zarah, but the sacrifices that they do to the Avodah Zarah are only for this purpose of a kapara. There could be other services of that idol, like Baal Pa'or with going to the bathroom, etc. But that's not considered a kapara. That's something else entirely. But when it's a korban, a korban is a kapara. They can't think of anything else. Then comes Rashi. Rashi says the famous line that Paro himself was a great astrologer. Paro was able to look at the sky and see things that us... Us, we would never be able to see. He claimed to have seen a kochav. Now, a kochav, remember, back then, does not have to be a star. A kochav can be a planet. A kochav can be a planet. And he called this kochav ra'a. Ra'a is an evil. And he knew that this star was coming to greet the Jews from the desert. When they leave, they're going to have the kochav, this kochav, ra'a, in front of them when they go out into the desert. If they would leave, it's going to be terrible. And he said to them, because having that mazel, that kochav, in charge of you while you're going out, that only stands for horrible things that are going to happen to you in the desert, it's a simon for blood and death. That's what Rashi says, that this star is a simon for blood and death, and that's what Paro was saying. When the Jews later sinned by the Egel Azov, when they sinned by the Egel Azov, what did HaKadosh Baruch Hu want to do? He wanted to destroy them entirely. And he said, I'm going to destroy the entire nation. One of the arguments that Moshe Rabbeinu gave, one of the clear arguments he gave is, you cannot destroy them, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You cannot destroy them. You know why? He says, Lama yomru or Why should the Egyptians say, That he took them out in Ra, under the mazel of Ra, They're going to be proven right. If you destroy them, if you kill them, that's going to prove them right. They're going to say, see, we said this is going to happen. Look what happened. 
This is what we told you was going to happen. That's exactly what we're worried about. And by Yenochem Hashem al lamo. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu consoled himself. He said, you know what? You're right. I'm not going to do the ra'ah that I said I'm going to do to the people. I won't do that evil. I won't do that evil, meaning I won't allow that kochav to do anything bad to the people. Listen to that. There's an unbelievable thing going on here. Paro is saying, I see a mazel that's in charge of you, some type of kochav. This kochav is ra'ah. This kochav is evil for you. It's blood, it's death, etc. And that's going to happen to you in the desert if you don't do anything about it. You have to work on this. You have to do something about it. To which Hashem, so to speak, agreed with it and said, you're right, I shouldn't let that happen. I won't allow anyone to say such a thing. And therefore, took them out at a different time. The Balaturim says the whole thing is hinted to within the Sofei Tevis of the Pasuk. Ra'a neged penechem. Ra'a neged penechem. Sofei Tevis is hadam. Hadam, the blood. This mazel is known for being blood and death. The Rabbin Abachaya says, this is what Moshe Rabbin was really worried about. And why he told HaKadosh Baruch Hu they couldn't die like this. Because if they die, it would be such a chil Hashem. The Egyptians are going to look at them and say, see, we saw this coming. How in the world? It was raw the whole time. The Egyptians would even look at it and say, there was never a Hashem. HaKadosh Baruch Hu was never in charge here. It was raw the whole time. Raw fooled the Jews into leaving so that they could all die. That's what happened over here. Says Paro, or said the Egyptians, the way the Egyptians would look at it is, see, that's the whole thing. Said Moshe of it is such a chal Hashem you can't let happen. Don't do it, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and Hashem did not do it. They weren't killed during that time. Ayala Shachar asked the question that's obvious. Is it that much better if they stayed in Mitzrayim? Tell me, if they would have stayed, aren't they still under the mazel of Ra'a? Right? Why would it be any better if they stayed? And the answer is twofold. Number one, it's only under them if they go to the midbar. That's number one. If they go to the midbar, then they'll be under Ra'a. Number two, when a person is a slave, you have no mazel. A mazel of a slave goes under their master. The master, the master's mazel ends up ruling whatever it is. There's no madim by him. He didn't, they wouldn't have to worry about it. So he said, if you stay by me, you'll be fine. You go, you're going to be killed. That's a bad choice. That's a bad choice between them. Rather, stay with me so you don't have to worry about that. But there's so much more to it. Let me give you a quick uh, astronomy lesson, I guess we can call it. If a person looks up at the sky with his naked eye without anything else, there are seven orbs that you're able to see. The sun and the moon are obvious, right? The sun and the moon are out there. You can also see with your naked eye, you can see Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. None of the other planets are able to be seen. If you look up, you're not going to be able to see any of the others. You'll be able to see up to Saturn itself. So there are five planets, the moon and the sun. The truth is, each one of these mazelos are connected to a day of the week. And if you know this, Sunday is the day of the sun, obviously. Monday is the day of the moon. Saturday is obviously the day of Saturn, right? Thursday is really Thursday for Jupiter. And then there's Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday that stand for Mars, Mercury, and Venus. And each one of those days are for one of those. And there's a reason why we have that, because there are certain muzzles that happen on every day. And the Gemara and Shabbos, and Kufnan Aleph on the base, Kufnan base, deals with this, that there are such things as constellations. Not just constellations in the sky, the zodiac with the 12, that's for sure out there. And that's something that we do believe in, not in the same way that the horoscopes have it. But we have something that's similar in some way. But there's another thing called Shetzem Chanchal, that's Shabsai, Tzedek, which is Jupiter, Shabsai, Saturn, Tzedek is Jupiter, Madim, which is Mars. And then you go on, Chanchal, Chama, Noga, Kochav, Levana, which are the other four that we go through. It goes through and we have a pattern in which we go through this sort of stuff where each one of these things are understood. And we have this. Each one stands for something. And even this, I don't want to say it's a pure mazel. It's something that we do understand. We don't get the whole thing behind it, but they do exist within the world. There's something behind all this. 
Rabbeinu Bechaya says the kochav, which Paro called Ra, is the same thing that we call Madin. Ra'a, this star, star, is Mars. It's referring to our Mars. Esav called it Edom. It's the red star. And unfortunately, my eyes can't see it without a telescope. But a person has the ability to see from their eyes, just looking up at the heavens, you can see a red planet. When Mars is more visible to our atmosphere, you can see it as a red planet. It doesn't look like stars. It's not twinkling. It's not white. It looks reddish. It looks reddish. There's no glow like Venus has. It has a reddish glow to it. And that's known as Mars. When that planet comes out, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, they all believed that there was war, bloodshed. There was destruction that came through. There were certain powers behind it. We know that Ares, Mars, right? Those are the two names that they gave it, is the god of war. They thought that things would happen when Mars came into the sky and the terrible things that would be there in the future. The question that I had, which I couldn't, I I had to look through, is what did the Egyptians think of this Mars? What did they think of Mars? What did they consider it themselves? If that's the planet that the Rabbeinu Bechaya says Rashi is referring to, the god of bloodshed, then that's what Kochav is referring to. What does this mean? The Torah Shlema brings down that it's connected to Balsafon. I don't know anything about Balsafon. All I know is that it looked like a dog and it was the god of gold. But I know nothing else about it. Somehow there's a connection between these things. What exactly does it mean and where does it go through? So I do not pretend, I'm not going to tell you that I know anything about Egyptian gods and I don't know anything about their views on the planets themselves. I did a bit of research and here's what I came up with, okay? So I'm going to tell you what I have and if an Egyptologist comes up to me and tells me you don't know what you're talking about, I'm totally fine with that. This is all from about three days of research, only three days, and at best, maybe six hours altogether, at the most, right? Maybe that. And I even had my Shilohs, and the truth is, I'm not even so sure I'm allowed to say these names, because you're not supposed to, they shouldn't be Yasker al-Picha, you shouldn't say the names of Egyptian gods if it's not written in the Torah itself. What I'm going to do is I'm going to mispronounce every single one of them with my American accent, and hope that that's going to be good enough when it comes down to that. I did ask a Shiloh for this, so we'll go through and we'll have it like this. 3,500 years ago, the Egyptians believed the following. The belief system was that Geb, who is the god of earth, and Nut, the goddess of the sky, she's also known as Nut, so I think you're okay with that, we can call her Nut, right, had a few children. There was Set, who is an aardvark or a jackal, who is the god of the deserts, which included chaos, violence, and disaster. Sounds like a good good Mars opportunity, right? There was also Osiris, who looked like a green-skinned man, who was the god of the afterlife and the underworld, and he was married to his sister, Isis, right? Isis. Not the Isis that we have today. They're also evil, but over here, she looked like a regular woman who was the goddess of magic and protection over the land of Egypt in general. Okay, so we have Set, Osiris, and Isis. We have those three right over here. After Set killed his, that's what ended up happening. After Set killed his brother Osiris, the reason why he did so is in order to marry his sister Isis. That's some pretty heavy family issues, right? But either way, he wanted to marry his, his sister Isis. He killed Osiris and destroyed her completely, destroyed him completely, and making him the god of the afterlife, right? So what he ended up doing was he tried to be together with, with, with his sister Isis, but Isis refused, brought back her ex-husband Osiris to life from the dead, brought him back from the dead, became pregnant from the newly tchiasamesimed Osiris, and had a child, and the name of that child was Horus, who looks like a falcon. Looks like a falcon. He, Horus is known as a guardian of the earth, who is known as the god of the land of fertility and good land. That's what the Egyptians believed. 
that Horus is in charge of that. Eventually, Set and Horus duke it out for the rights to the earth, because Osiris is dead, Isis, I don't know what happened to her, right? And Horus and Set duke it out for the, the rulership of the world. Will it be the god of the deserts versus the god of the fertile lands? And Horus wins. He loses an eye in the process, but Horus wins. He defeats, uh, he defeats Set, causing him to be the official protector of the entire world. Is everybody with me so far? So far we got the Egyptian gods going? Okay. There were many, many other gods they believed in. Two other important ones are Ra. Maybe you've heard of Ra before, right? Ra is something that's famous throughout all the Egyptians and the god of the sun who created all of existence in their minds. Ra is a very important god to them. And Amun. Amun was later combined with Ra to make Amun-Ra, which is one of their famous temples, right? Tutankhamun was part of that, etc. That's King Tut that everybody knows who became the god of all gods. Amun-Ra became the god of all the gods out there. It would be amazing, wouldn't it? If the word Ra'a in our Pasuk would somehow connect with the god of Egypt, which is Ra, wouldn't that be amazing? That would be the craziest thing in the world if we went it through. So how could that be? And somehow it was connected with the planet Mars as well. So I did, I did a little bit of work. As we said above, in ancient civilizations, Mars was known as the god of war and destruction. So that would work out well with Set, right? Set was the god of war and destruction as well as the deserts and stuff like that. So it makes out a lot of what. But it seems clear. Mars in Egyptian is called Horus. That's what they call it. The name of, of, of Mars is Horus. And they call Horus, as we said, their official protector. The craziest thing is, there is a certain part of Mars that's called the Tharsis Bulge. The Tharsis Bulge is a little area on Mars that can be seen. Again, I can't see it without a telescope, but I, there might be people who can see it. That has like a little circle. In that circle, there's two little caves looks like eyes. There's a little thing like a little thing that sticks out over there. And there's a little thing that goes on top as well. It looks like a child's face sucking his thumb with a little whatever, like a hairpiece that comes from it right on top. And that's exactly how Horus is depicted in all the Egyptian. Like when they depict Horus, they picture him as a child with a little hair thing right up there, thumb in his mouth with a hawk or a, a, some type of a huge bird right on top of it. That's how they all depict it because they believe that Horus was the god of Mars and that his face was on Mars. I don't know what he's doing up there, but he had something on top of there. And if you're completely drunk and have a tremendous imagination, you can see it and you can totally see it. I guess it's the same way that all constellations work, like star here, star here, star here. That's a lion. Wow. You come up with that. It really goes with anything like that. And you can figure out somehow they're connected. Now, Horus, as we said before, was known as a divine king the personal protector of Paro. It would be likely that Horus is the one that Paro expected to protect him. So it makes a lot of sense now. Paro took it even further. Paro looked up at this guy and he saw that Mars was right on top. And he said, that's my God. That's my guy. He protects me. Mars is Horus. That's my God, the protector of Paro, the protector of all of Egypt, the one who took over everything. So he looked up at this guy. He saw the Kochav of Ra. He saw that Kochav out there. And he said, that's Horus. That's the one in charge. And he said, you think you're going to be able to leave under my protection? Under my God? You're going to be destroyed by my guy. My guy's going to take care of you. That's what's going to happen over here. And maybe that's what's referring to over here. The Kliakar seems to take it a little bit different when it comes to that. Paro thought he had caught them in their lie. He looked at them and he said, you guys are pretending to worship Hashem. No, you're not. You're worshiping Horus. You're worshiping my God. I know why you want to leave. Because of Mars. You see Mars on top of the desert and you want to go worship him. Well, that's my God. It's not yours. It's mine. 
he's telling you to take a three-day pilgrimage and he's telling you to go to a deserted area and sacrifice to him there in order to knock down Set and make him the most important thing out there. I can read the stars. I know exactly what you're doing, said Paro. Said the Kliyakar, that we have a God that's raw. That's our God. We're in charge over here. You don't realize that you're getting into my territory now. You don't have a Hashem. There is no Hashem. It's all my gods and that's it. That's the idea. When Moshe and Aaron insisted that he was wrong, you're wrong. That's not what we're doing. It has nothing to do with your gods. Your gods are garbage. We believe in a Kaddish Baruch Hu and there's nothing else but a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Paro threw them out and said, I don't want to talk to you. Malbim adds to this. The God you're planning to worship is something that I know very well. This God that you want to worship demands child sacrifice. That's why you're bringing kids. You're not just bringing animals to sacrifice to him. You're bringing your kids out there to sacrifice them to my God. That's what he wants. Said Paro, I'm not going to let you do it. That's evil. You're going to go out to the desert and sacrifice all of your children. That's what you're doing. That's what you're bringing your kids out there. That's why Paro was saying, why do you want your kids? You're doing it to sacrifice to my God. You're going to do your own Akedas Yitzchak. That's what you're going to do over here. It's not going to be worth it. I'm telling you, you don't know what you're doing. That's what he told him. And he told him, don't do it. It's not going to work. But let's go on. What? Well, I think that's part of the, the, the Mida Kenegamida, that he was killing the children, right? And telling them, don't kill the children, right? And in the end, he lost his firstborn because of that. That's the Mida Kenegamida of what he was trying to do. There are writers, and again, I'm not claiming to be an Egyptologist, that Ra is connected to Horus. That even though Ra was a separate god, the god of gods, the god of the sun, Horus was also connected to Ra at some point. And guess when that happened, guys? Happened about 3,500 years ago where Ra and Horus were connected to one another. They were both made the same. Horus took over Ra's position. He is now the leader of the universe. So when you say the word Ra in the Pusik, it could be referring to Ra, their original god, who is also the god Horus, connected to that god Horus, and everything is connected to Mars and the sun. And he's telling them, you're going to the desert, which is the area of the sun, together with Mars on top, who's in t- charge of it at night. That's what you're trying to do. You're going to connect Horus and Ra, putting it together. And that's Bera Hotsiyam. That's the Ra that you're putting out over here. It's possible it's there, but the truth is, Ra's connected to everybody when it comes to Egypt. He's connected to Osiris, he's connected to Amun, he's connected to all the different gods. So I don't know how that works exactly, but it's possible, at least possible, that that's what he refers to by Ra, Hotsiyam over here. I would say, I would tell you personally, it's very likely that the Ra is going through this entire thing is referring to his protector. And it's not just evil, it's referring to his actual guy that's going out there, and that's Ron Horus. But I've got one little card up my sleeve. Does anybody know the name of the paro that everybody claims we were in Mitzrayim with? The paro that was in charge of the Jews at the time. Anybody know what his name is? Ramses II, right? Ramses II was part of a new dynasty that came in by his grandfather, Ramses I. Now, we don't know if it's true. Ramses II was by far the greatest paro, paro that Egypt has ever been through. They, he was a guy who took over tons of land. He was the wealthiest and one of the longest reigning kings in all of Egypt. Ramses II, I believe, reigned for something like 60-odd years. Nobody else reigned that long. It was usually like 20 years and then they were killed or something like that. But Ramses II reigned for a very, very, very long time. So that was him. His grandfather, Ramses I, was a king who had taken over after the previous dynasty went away. If we all remember in Parshish Mitzrayim, a new king got up on Mitzrayim, it could be it's referring to Paro. It's more likely it's referring to a new dynasty altogether, and Ramses I is the one that we're referring to. Ramses I is the guy that everybody's referring to when they say he took over Yakam Mitzrayim. Ramses I and Ramses II, I said, was grandfather and grandson. 
The one in between was a guy by the name of Seti. Seti the first. S-E-T-I the first. The name of Ramses the second's child was also Siktamun or something like that. They're both based on the god by the name of Set. They're both based on that. The Ramses Pharaoh kingdom believed not necessarily in Horus or in Ra. They believed that in that fight between Horus and Set, Set won the war. And the one to worship was Set instead of Horus. And as we said before, Set, although he has no connection to the planet Mars, that's not who he's connected to. But nonetheless, Set was an extremely powerful, evil god who is dealing with evil, dealing with destruction, dealing with the bad things that happen at any point. And all of this is referring to, literally, the man, the, the, the whole idea of what Set, Set was there for. Ramses II's whole army believed in Set. They went through, Ramses made the 400 years steli at P. Ramses, by the way, connected to the Jews as well, specifically commemorating the 400-year anniversary of the Set cult in the Delta itself. This is the power that's connected with the Jews of Mitzrayim. So guess what? It might not be Mars. He saw that Set was in charge at that time and therefore told them, the evil things are going to happen. You're, in, you're, you're getting into some really horrible things because Set is the god of destruction. Set is the god that's going to make everything bad happen. Maybe that's what it's referring to. So when it says, when it refers to this, when it says that raw is the issue that says, I don't know if it's referring to Horus Ra or it's referring to Set in some way, shape, or form, but it's certainly, in my mind, one of the two. And it seems crazy, but it looks like it connects with what they have over here. Rashi says the most amazing thing in the world, though. He says, even though there is blood, according to this, still believe the mazel. Hashem changed the blood into the blood of the Korban Pesach and the blood of the Bris Mila. Even though it says that they're going to die in the midbor, that's not what it really meant. If a person's born under the mazel of Madam, says the Gemara, if a person's born under the mazel of Mars, you're either going to be a murderer and a thief or a shochet and a mohel. Or a shochet and a mohel. You could choose. It's got to be something that has to do with blood. So if you see a bunch of doctors, doctors are also. It's probably under the mazel of Madam. You can just assume that they're killers. They're really killers at heart, right? But they're using it for good. They're using it for good. A shochet, for sure that guy's a murderer at heart. For sure. I'm a shochet. I'm for sure a murderer at heart. I just haven't murdered yet. Okay, that happens. Rabba turns to his people. I think it was Rav Yosef. It might have been. No, it was Rabba. Rabba turned to his students and he said, I was born into the Mazel of Madim. I'm not a murderer. And Abayi turned to him and said, you realize, right, that you're part of Sanhedrin. You kill people. That's also, that's part of this Mazel of Madim. When a person is born into that Mazel of Madim, this is what happens to them. They're part of this idea of what Madim stands for. That happens. You can make it good, but it could also be bad. Says Rashi. HaKadosh Baruch Hu made it good. It was blood. They were supposed to die. There were people that were going to happen. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu turned it into the blood of the bris milah. HaKadosh Baruch Hu turned it into the blood of the Korban Pesach. That astrological sign is real. It is real. There is something behind it. And Paro was seeing something. He just wasn't sure what it was. The sign was that something was going to happen in the midbar. Some blood was going to be spilled. Instead of them dying... It was the blood of the bris meal and the blood of the Korban Pesach. And that's what it turned into and it became like that. The Kliyakr talks about this as well. Such an unbelievable thing that a Kodesh Baruch Hu still made it happen. He even says, there's another Gemara, Moed Kat and Dav 
Rabbi Shimbar Yechai sends his son Rabbi Elazar to go greet the two rabbis who just left. One of them was Yehuda ben Gerim. If anybody remembers the Gemara in Shabbos, Laman Gimel Beis, by the Rabbi Yochai's story with the cave, Yehuda ben Gerim was the one who told on him or whatever, got, made everything public. So Yehuda ben Gerim and another, they both left. Rabbi Shimbar Yochai told his son, go, go to them, go ask them for a bracha. He went to them for a bracha, Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Shimon. He got a bracha for them and he came back and he told his father, they cursed me. They cursed me. They said horrible things about me. They said, Tiz you should plant, but you should not get the, the wheat that grows from such a thing. How could they say that to me? They were cursing me out. They weren't giving me a bracha. They were saying terrible things. Said Roshim Bayochai, no, those are brachos. Those are brachos. And he explained all of the brachos in a different fashion. You're going to be able to have this, but you won't have that. You won't have this. And he explained the whole thing in a completely different way. Tiz is really the biggest bracha in the world, said Roshim Bayochai. Says the Kliyakr. So why did they say it that way? Why did they make it sound like a horrible curse? Why did they make it sound so horrible? Says the Kliyakr, because they looked at the mazel of Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Shimon. They looked at his mazel and they saw horrible things were going to happen to him. They saw horrible things. So they gave him a bracha within the horrible things. They saw those things that instead of being really poor or losing your kids, chas v'shalom, or losing your wife, Instead, translated in a different way, we're able to take the words and literally reform them into something different. The truth is, every great Rebbe is able to do that. They see something that's going to happen to somebody that looks a little bit bad, and they reform it into something else. That's our job by Eicha. Eicha is not going to leave us Asad Lava. We're going to have Eicha. We're going to read it on Tisha B'Av. But instead of reading it as Eicha Haisa Eicha Haisa, uh, uh, what's the next word, guys? How could, how could the Yerushalayim be sitting alone? It's the opposite. Eicha, how could it be? Ha'ir Rabasiyam. A city is now filled with people. Haisa, right? I'm forgetting the words. It once was solitary. You can reread Eicha. You can turn it into a bracha. You just have to put the words in a different way and reread it into something that becomes a bracha. That's our job. Our job is to find the good within the bad. Says the Kliyakar, that's the idea behind it. He said the exact same thing for Rebbe Allah's over here. And this idea is so amazing. It's that Rebbe Allah's got the greatest brachos in the world without even realizing it because the mazel was bad, but they retranslated to good. And that's what Rashi says happened over here as well. HaKadosh Baruch Hu saw there was blood. He agreed there was going to be blood. You're supposed to die, he told the Jews. Don't worry, I got it taken care of. Don't worry, everything's going to be okay. I've got everything taken care of. You don't have to worry about anything whatsoever. So here as well, you're born under the mazel of Madam, you're going to be a murderer or a thief, but you could be a shochet or a moel. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave the Jews two mitzvos. Dam Mila and Dam Pasach. The Dam of the Korban Pasach, by the way, Kira, is the same gematria altogether as Orla. So they would accomplish the mitzvah in such a way where the interpretation of the stars could be through this. If anybody goes through, V'omar Lach B'damayi Chayi, V'omar Lach B'damayi Chayi. Does anybody know where we say that? At a bris. V'omar Lach B'damayi Chayi, V'omar Lach B'damayi Chayi. We take the bris Mila, the blood of the bris Mila, and we say, V'omar Lach B'damayi Chayi. Anybody know where else we say it? One other time. Twice a year. Twice a year. Start from the Brismila. Pesach. At the Seder table. 
You say, because there's two mitzvahs that we have, Dam Mila and Dam Pesach, that make everything special, that change everything around, that make everything into a different fashion. That's what we're doing every single time. We're saying, this blood allowed us to live. You're going to live through this blood. It's going to change your lives through this blood. That's what's going to happen over here. It's an amazing, amazing line. And that's the whole idea, says the Kliyakar. Turning everything around, literally turning everything around. And you say it every Yom Kippur. Ushuva, Usfila, Utsidaka, Mavirinus Roag Zero. Think of those words, guys. Chuva, Tfil, and Tzedakah remove the evil of the Gezerah. The Gezerah will always exist. The Gezerah that Kaddish Baruch Hu made will happen. But it will remove the Roa HaGezerah. The evil of the decree is gone. The decree will be there. You'll translate it into something good. It will be retranslated into something great. What happened when Yonah gave his Nevuah to the city of Nineveh? What did he tell Nineveh? The Od Shloshes Yom, I think Shloshim Yom, in 30 days, Ninveh Nehefeches. Ninveh is going to be uprooted. It's going to have an earthquake. The whole city is going to be destroyed. And how, they did tshuva, right? If they did tshuva, they didn't die. The word Nehefeches can be understood as they were turned around completely because they did tshuva. Nevuah still happened. But the Roah HaGezerah was gone. The evil behind the decree was gone. That's what we're asking on Kaddish Baruch Hu. We have a Gezerah on us. We accept the decree. Whatever the decree is, don't make it bad, make it good. Turn that Roah into a Gezerah that's good. That's what we're asking on Kaddish Baruch Hu to do. And that's the bracha that's over here. It could be even Paro knew this. He knew that astrology is an inexact science. He's looking up and he's seeing evil things are going to happen. And he looks and he says to the Jews, something bad's going to happen. Something bad is going to happen to you. I don't know how it's going to happen. I'm telling you guys, I don't know if anybody would agree with me on this. I'm not so sure the Jews were happy about it being like, oh, it's bris milah. That's going to be fun. It's not exactly a walk in the park. Getting a bris milah is just sort of like, yeah, that's great. Let's get a bris milah. Anybody here want to get a bris milah right now? Let's go do that. I remember I talked to a guy who came from Russia at the age of 16, right? He came at 16, so he got a bris milah at the age of 16. He was in my yeshiva program when I had my yeshiva program back at Shuren. And he got a bris milah at 16. And he told me he's never been in that much pain in his life. Never been in that much pain. I said, you've never been through childbirth. He said, you're right. Right? Just for the women out there, just so they feel better. Right? But he said he's never been in that much pain in his life. And I can imagine it. So you can imagine Klau Yisrael sitting there and being like, oh, Baruch Hashem, bris milah. It must have been the hardest thing in the world. But nonetheless, it was turned around. The roag zero was turned around. There's something that's there. It could be that's the idea behind it. The Gur Aryeh says that all mazel is like this. It's an inexact science. Who knows what's going to be? It's really after something happens, you look back at the mazel and you say, oh, now I get it. To predict mazel before it happens is ridiculous because we never know. But the fact is there is a mazel out there. There's something. You could see it if you knew what you were seeing. It's an inexact science, but if you knew what you were doing, you'd be able to see what's going to be. Instead, you could read your horoscope. Well, I don't know. It might be Maonin by reading your horoscope in the newspaper. You probably shouldn't do that at all. That might be an Israel deal, right? So you could be killed for that. That's actually Chai Misa. So don't read your horoscope in the paper, right? But regardless, in theory, you could look at such things if it was done through Torah fashions and understand how astrology does have a power to it. There is something to it. But we only get it sort of like hindsight. You know, the 2020 hindsight where you look back and you're like, oh, now I understand. Now I understand why that happened that way. And if we only understood it, it would be completely different. I'm not going to go through everything. Obviously, Paro was somewhat right. What happened over the next 39 years in the desert, guys? Every single one of them died. Every single one. Every Jew died. 
Maybe not the women. There's a question about that. But over 40 years, 39 years, the Meraglim killed off everybody. So they were all dead. Yeah. Yoshua and Kalev were the only survivors. But that's crazy. That means, altogether, the only people that survived were those under 20 and those over 60. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu said, by the way, Bino reinu vizkeninu neilech. Mi holachim. Who's going, Separo? Is the gematria of Kalev u Ben Nun. Because the only people who are going to go in were Kalev and Ben Nun. And he answered, Bino reinu vizkeninu neilech. We're going to go in with those under 20 and those over 60. That's what we're going to go in with. That's the pshat, right? Because we're going to go in with that. So Paro was somewhat right. Can you imagine? At the end of the day, Paro was right. You're all going to die in the midbar. Paro Moshe's like, nah. And then in the end, he was right. He was right. They all died. They all died. But the difference is, none of them bled to death. You understand what I'm saying? The blood wasn't there. Paro saw a bloodbath. That's what he saw. Kochav Madim shows blood, the red blood. That never happened. And that was a bracha for Klai Yisrael. That was something that was a little bit different. It seems a bit there. I'm not going to go through the Yaros Devash. The Yaros Devash is absolutely amazing. And then there's a Chidon, Megalia Mukos, and the Malaya Omer that says tr- tremendous Ramazim over here. We're going to stop with this for right now. For those who want, I have the sources on the very bottom over here. You can look at that yourselves. But it should be good, everybody. Have a great Shabbos. Ellie, do you mind turning off the thing? I don't know how to turn it off. You got it? All right. Awesome. Really? Yeah. So, um, I, so Blaine Nader, I got my grandmother to sponsor me. So, so the classic uh, Yarav remarks from us. Of course. Uh, I was. Oh my God.